Good morning, everybody. Um, as Aaron said, my name is Ian Howard. I am the student ministry director here at Restore. Um, and I cry at movies. That's what I do. It's embarrassing, but I just felt like I need to get that out there. Um, Castaway, Ball, Dark Knight, you know, that Commissioner Gordon speech at the end gets me every time. Prince of Egypt, Lion King, all three Lord of the Rings movies. Homeward Bound, you're a monster if you don't cry at Homeward Bound. Uh, for me, Eight Mile, because I have to cry at Eight Mile. Um, you name it, I probably cried at some point during that part of that film. Uh, one of the stories my, my wife loves to tell, um, if you ask her about it, she loves to, to kind of poke fun at me. Uh, from our dating years, uh, from me crying at the film Inception. Any Inception fans in the room? One. One and two, okay, three, okay. Really hesitant Inception fans. Um, great film, Christopher Nolan, Dark Knight trilogy uh, director. This was the follow-up to Dark Knight, and I was like, oh, I got to see this. This is the summer of 2010. We had been dating for a year and a half, two years at that point, and um, I think she knew that I was a crier, but this confirmed all suspicions. So the film is about Leonardo DiCaprio, and he is, uh, and every, the cast of every other Christopher Nolan movie, including Michael Caine. Michael Caine is in it, um, with, with every other, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, the whole band. Essentially, their whole deal is they break into people's minds, their subconscious, their dream world, and they steal ideas, thoughts, dreams, etc. Um, or they plant ideas, which is where Inception comes from. Um, they, so the whole movie, Leonardo is navigating between the dream world and reality. He's in the dream world. He's you know, making buildings topple over and walking on glass and doing all sorts of weird stuff in the dream world. But then he pops back into the uh, life of reality. And he, the line eventually is, essentially gets blurred for him. Um, he has an object that he has in his pocket at all times to remind him whether he's dreaming or whether he's in reality. And it's called, he calls it his totem, which essentially the definition of a totem is a person or thing regarded as being symbolic or representative of a particular quality or concept, in this case, reality. So he takes his top out every time he's not sure what's going on, and he spins it, and if it topples, he's in reality. He's like, okay, I'm good. If it, if it continuously spins unnaturally, it lets him know that he's dreaming. So he navigates back and forth between these dream, dream world and reality, and eventually it costs him dearly. I'm not going to spoil it. I'm going to spoil the end, but I'm not going to spoil this part for you. It costs him, and he has to complete that, and he gets separated from his kids. He gets separated from his family, and he has to complete that one last job, and this job is his ticket home to be reunited with his kids. So he completes that one job. He gets back. At the end of the movie, he walks in. Michael Caine gives him the Michael Caine welcome home. And um, he sees his kids playing in the backyard. And before he sees them and he wants to go greet them. And as he, before he leaves, he feels in his pocket, pulls out that totem, and he spins it. And he leaves it and he goes and he greets his kids and as the movie ends, Hans Zimmer doing his thing with the music, incredible soundtrack, the music is swelling, you're just, oh, this is the most emotional thing ever. And then the camera pans down and the top is still spinning. And as the movie cuts, I'm gonna cry right now talking about it. The, the, you see the top start to gain the slightest wobble and then it cuts out. And it just leaves you there hanging. I look over at Andrea yeah, that was 10 years ago. It was a whole decade ago. Yikes. And so we were 21, 22 years old. I look over at her and she's like, what did I miss? Like, what just happened? And I am sobbing. 
I am on the floor. And just because of the weight of that last moment, did it topple? Did it not topple? Is he really home? Is he home to his kids? Is he in reality or is he in the dream world? We don't know. But this moment was built on the previous two hours of film that had informed my thought on how the world of Inception worked. This moment meant so much because of the two hours I had watched previously. Um, now, I was lined up in the rotation to share this, this in October. So I've been sitting on this for a while. Then the great flood of the living room happened. And then, <laughs> then in December, Andy McNeely stole my spot. And um, so I've been, got a lot of things to say to you people. Um, here we are for Sunday of 2020. No pressure to, to kick this off. But uh, we, here at Restore, we love to talk about the kingdom of God and what it means and um, how we can bring that here to Silver Spring. And so I want to talk a little bit more about that. I know it's what I talked about last time, but we're going to talk about it from a little bit of a different angle. Jesus talks about his kingdom in many different ways. Uh, leaven bread, a pearl, a fishing net, ten virgins, a bunch of really weird stuff that doesn't really quite land with us in 2020. Uh, we get lost in translation sometimes, but the people he was speaking to knew exactly what he was talking about because of the previous two hours of film, because of the scripture that had come before, and because his Old Testament scriptures and cultural implications of the day. So today we're going to be talking about the parable of the mustard seed, and it appears in three out of the four Gospels, which... 75%, I mean, that's pretty good, right? That's what I told myself in high school. 75%, that's pretty good. My parents weren't happy with that. Um, also means it was likely something that the authors thought was pretty important, that they wanted to pass on. So we'll take a look at this parable and dive into a few things. The audience, who was it written to, the context, the meaning, and then how do we respond? What do we do with this mustard seed? So we'll look at three scriptures up on the screen uh, from three of the um, three of the Gospels, and we'll highlight some of the few differences between them. Mark 4, 30 through 32, for those of you keeping score at home. Uh, Jesus said, how can I describe the kingdom of God? What story should I use to illustrate it? It's like a mustard seed planted in the ground. It's the smallest of all seeds, but it becomes the largest of all garden plants. It grows long branches and the birds can make its nest in its shade. That's Mark. And Matthew 13, 31 through 32. Here's another illustration Jesus used. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed planted in a field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but it becomes the largest of all garden plants. It grows into a tree. The birds come and make its nest in its branches. And then finally, Luke 13, 18 through 19. Then Jesus said, what is the kingdom of God like? How can I illustrate it? It is like a tiny mustard seed that a man planted in a garden. It grows and becomes a tree, and the birds make its nest in its branches. So, Quick glance, there's not a really a huge difference between the three tellings of this parable. But I really want to focus on the last two references in Matthew and Luke to find some small differences that may, that may be, uh, pertain to the audiences that these people or that this passage was intended for. Uh, Luke was a Gentile and was or essentially non-Jew. Uh, his audience would have been other Gentiles throughout the ancient world. As an author writing to other Gentiles, his focus was on the branches and what it provides for the birds, safety, nesting, etc. Um, as an outsider who found shelter in its branches, it would make sense that the emphasis would be on the birds, that the tree, the shelter, the nest is for everybody. Matthew's telling was written by a Jew and intended for Jews. Jews in the time of Jesus were still waiting for the Messiah to come and to set everything right again, to restore their nation and bring their kingdom back to prominence. They wanted a grand entrance, a military savior who would liberate them from the Romans. And his disciples, so it's funny, even after his resurrection, his disciples still thought that that was the plan. In Acts 1.6, he says, uh, or 
it says, Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of it to Israel? Like, Jesus, you're still going to do that thing, right? Like, that was the plan the whole time. This was just a hiccup, and now you're going to do the thing, right? And he's, no, that's, that's not the plan. Um, they were waiting for, again, Jesus to make Israel great again. And they were not. Um, Jesus spoke about the upside down and paradoxical nature of the kingdom. And that's what Matthew's trying to communicate to his audience. He's saying, look, this is a really, really small thing. Like, this starts small. And it's not what you're thinking. It's not going to go the way you think it's going to go, and it's not going to look the way you think it's going to look. And so that's what Matthew is trying to communicate to his audience. And you can't really get much smaller than one man and 12 disciples uh, to look at where the church is today. It's, it's pretty tiny. Also, the parable is really short, like it's maybe two verses long. So it's really begging us to look at the context of what's happening around it. Um, in Matthew chapters 11 through 13 specifically, we're given descriptions of different groups of people. Um, they, and essentially how they react to Jesus. Some people are super on board with Jesus. Some people are like, this dude is the guy. He is the Messiah. Uh, my brain works in sports. So for the sports fans in the room, it's like you watch the college game and you're like, that dude is going somewhere. Like that dude is going to be an all-star. It's like, I don't like the guy. I would never pretend to like the guy. But like when I was in junior high and LeBron was in high school, like you could watch LeBron play on ESPN on high school and be like, that dude is good. Like, that guy is going to go to the NBA straight out of 11th grade, whatever it was. So there were people that felt this way about Jesus. People were like, that guy is the Messiah. He's it. He is the guy. There were other people that were kind of more neutral, um, like his family, uh, John the Baptist. They were like, okay, Jesus, this is what we were expecting you to do, but you're not quite meeting our expectations. You're not quite fulfilling what we thought you were going to look like. And then obviously there are the Pharisees and religious leaders and maybe even other people who think he was blasphemous, he's a false teacher, he's leading people astray. Um, so you have a lot of, and that's where Jesus comes up with the parable of the soil. You know, different people are going to hear my words and respond differently to it. And so um, a lot of these teachings and parables that we see after leading up to this mustard seed verse are a commentary on the different types of people that, that hear Jesus. Um, so now you may be thinking, okay, Ian, like, Cool, 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 cool. Like, all that's really interesting and nerdy stuff, but, like, why did you tell us, like, that really weird story at the beginning about you crying and, like, that's just weird. Um, where is our previous two hours of film? Like, when is that going to kick in? So when telling the parable of the mustard seed and talking about trees and branches and the shade and what it provides for the birds, Jesus was likely referring to a passage back in Daniel. Daniel 4 specifically. Daniel 4.12 said, It had fresh green leaves, and it was loaded with fruit for all to eat. Wild animals lived in its shade. Bird nest, birds nested in its branches, and all the world was fed from this tree. Now, the tree in this passage is not the same tree that Jesus is talking about. It represents the kingdom of Babylon. And the context of this verse, Daniel interprets the dream from Nebuchadnezzar, saying, like, yo, dog, like, I wish I had better news for you, but your kingdom's gotten too big, and you've gotten too cocky, so... We're going to have to, to humble you a little bit. So God's going to take your kingdom from you. And um, verse 26 says, The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. So essentially, once you realize that God's in control, that God's handling things, like you're going to get your kingdom back. Sure enough, within 12 months of this interpretation, Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind, dwelt and ate with animals for seven seasons. Um... So we can see from this, it's very clear what the shade and the branches mean in this context. Many scholars think that this is what Jesus is referring to. This is the previous two hours of film. Um, 
this is how we know what Jesus means when he says the tiniest seed will yield a large tree and that all birds and animals will find rest and shelter in it. Jesus saying this is the equivalent of him quoting a classic movie line. So I'm going to spoil another movie for a lot of you, although I would hope most of you have seen it at this point. It's like that iconic like Star Wars scene, like, I'm your father, like, Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. Yeah, he told me enough. He told me you killed him. No, I'm your father. Like, that whole, st- yeah, ruin it for David. Um, <laughs> spoiler alert. So, fast forward 30 or 40 years. I was actually watching this fairly recently, d- thanks Disney+. Plus. Um, I was watching this recently. Toy Story 2 came out like 35 years later, or whatever it was. And at the end, Zerg and Buzz are fighting, and Zerg's like, no, I'm your father. That has so much meaning because of the film that came 35 to 40 years prior to it. We know what it means. It, it, it's funny. It's, so when Jesus says, oh, yeah, it's like, the, it's like the tree that provides shade and branches, it's him referring to Daniel. It's him saying, hey, like, my kingdom is going to start really, really small, and it's going to take care of everybody, essentially, is the Ian Howard paraphrase of what that's going to look like. Um, it's like two hours of stealing dreams and planning ideas and spinning a top means something at the end of Inception. Um, To be clear, the trees in the passages represent kingdoms, not the same ones. Babylon, the kingdom of God. Birds represent us, humans, creation. And Jesus uses these images and metaphors because his audience would have known exactly where they came from. The big difference between Jesus and Daniel uh, is the seed, which then begs the question, what's the seed? Uh, Seeds need someone to plant. And... In this case, the seed is the gospel. It's the good news that Jesus paid for us and that his grace covers us. That is the good news, that we don't have to do anything to earn it and that it's freely given. So seeds need someone to plant, and that's where we come in. When we share the gospel or the good news, some pretty amazing things can happen. And I'm not talking about standing on the street corner, you know, yelling turn or burn or asking people, have you prayed the sinner's prayer or anything like that. Um, I'm just talking about some pretty normal stuff, giving the shirt off your back, maybe giving your hard-earned money that God has blessed you with to someone else so that maybe they can eat or maybe so that the good news can be spread elsewhere. Perhaps by genuinely caring for someone in their family in a time of hurt or offering condolences. Or perhaps a neighbor is moving and you let them borrow your car or your truck. It's giving up your time and your resources and space to dine with those around you or in the margins or maybe even, as Jesus might say, your enemies. I was on Twitter the other day, huge Twitter guy. I was on Twitter the other day, and I came across a tweet from a guy named Bruxy Cavey. Many of you may know him. He's a Canadian. Um, some of you may know or have read his stuff. He sent out a series of tweets with the hashtag Christmas Challenge. And this particular tweet caught my eye. It says, when you host a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends or relatives or neighbors, or rich neighbors. Instead, invite the poor, crippled, lame, and blind, and you will be blessed. And I read the tweet at first. I'm like, oh, like that's super profound. Like, that's awesome. And then I finished reading the tweet, and it said, Jesus, reference. I was like, oh, dang. And then I went and looked it up, and that is exactly what Jesus says. And so I'm like, wow, that is so challenging. And the Spirit has actually laid this on my heart and convicted me of this. One of our neighborhood collectives a few months back, we were talking about, I think it was last fall, we were talking about being with children, being with the least of these. I think it was Brett Howard and I were having a conversation about Shepherd's Table. I had never heard of it. And Shepherd's Table, for those of you that don't know, is just a little spot down the street um, where uh, folks who are homeless, folks who are hungry, that are needy, can pop in and get fed. And 
I didn't, I'd never heard about this being, I guess, relatively new to Silver Spring and new to being downtown frequently. So um, talked to him about it and I'm thinking, yes, this is a great way for me to get involved. It's easy. I work in the living room. I can just pop down the street once or twice a week and eat with those folks and build a relationship. Evangelist. Um, guess how many times I've been to Shepherd's Table? Zero. And this was very convicting for me. I work in the living room. I work a mile down, mile from down, or I live a mile from downtown. And my lunch every day looks like me scrolling through social media, reading about how bad Detroit sports are. Um, that's what I do. It's comfortable, and I that's what I choose. I choose the comfortable, easy way out instead of choosing to dine with folks who are different from me. And that has really convicted me and I, it's a small mustard seed thing choosing who you dine with it's not not quitting your job it's not you know rearranging your entire life it's just hey I'm gonna go eat a meal and that's the spirit has really convicted me with that and so I think I'm gonna make a more uh, concerted effort to get down and to, to be more of a presence at Shepherd's Table but instead of ending this on a Debbie Downer rant I want to talk a little bit more about the ways that I've seen the mustard seed planted and what I'm hoping to see God do with it our student ministry is fairly new here at Restore, um, and we're still figuring things out. We've had two kids attend pretty much every meeting, and eight others join us for various events and Bible studies. I quit my job, raised my salary. This is not mustard seed stuff, let me tell you. Um, this is pretty big stuff. Um, but some of the things that we've seen, some of the fruit that we've seen come from it, are mustard seed things. People pray for Andrea and I in our ministry here. People check in on us, encourage us, affirming God's work and word, what we're doing. People financially give to our ministry. Our two faithful volunteers, Colleen and Elijah Cook, giving up every other Friday night to guide and disciple and teach these kids. Church planning coaches giving up an hour each week to field my questions or help me cast visions for this ministry. Small prices, small things that people give, but they make a difference in the long run. And a lot of people planting seeds will go a long way. I'm really, really excited to see what God is going to do in the lives of these kids this year. It's going to be a big time year. Um, under the inside aisle uh, chair seat in every row, there should be a pad of sticky notes. Uh, and there's like 75 pens for these people in the first two rows. But every, every row should have some pens and some sticky notes. Um, and I really what I would just want you to do is I want you to write down one way you can sow a mustard seed. What is a small thing that you can do that can change someone's life or that maybe God can use to change someone's life? Um, God is, maybe God's been tugging at your heart, trying to teach you something, call you to something. Deep down, you know it's right. How should you respond? If you don't want to do it or if you're hesitant, then it might be the right thing to do. It's generally how I find things to work. Write it down in your sticky note and stick it in your pocket, your wallet, your purse. Maybe make it the wallpaper of your phone, but put it somewhere you'll see it and be challenged by it. Take a few minutes to do that now. In case your brain is fried like mine uh, from the holidays travel and what have you, here's a list of organizations and programs that need support in 2020. Hopefully this jumpstarts jump something in your heart and gets ideas rolling around where you can plant your mustard seed, where you can plant the good news. And we should have a list of those up on the screen. Perfect. Each of us has a mustard seed to sow. Each of us has the capacity to share the good news. There is shelter that someone can take in that. 
how will you sow your mustard seed in 2020? What is the small, sacrificial, selfless act that you will take that God will grow and bless you with? Let's pray.